Thank you. Be seated. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 6. I want to begin today with uh, training your mind towards the sports world. It's a great place to start. Um, There's a basic truth that we find played out in the sports world on a regular basis, and uh, we happen to be in one of those seasons where that's going to be especially true, Um, and that is that if you don't get the right people on the team, you don't have much chance at success. And exhibit A would be the Texans. He said the Cowboys, but he's a heretic. Um, (laughs) The Cowboys' problem is the owner, it's not the players. But um, let me me use the the Texans as an example, okay? Uh, Now, they may or may not have the right guys on the team, but they sure didn't play very much like it this year. And uh, so what, one of the things that started happening about, I don't know, six or eight weeks ago now is I started hearing Texans fans move away from we think we're going to be in the playoffs to being if we just lose out, then we'll get the first round or the first pick in the draft. Now, I, I, let me just tell you this, okay? As a rule, the teams that are competing for the Super Bowl this year are not thinking first draft choice, okay? That's not what they're thinking. They're thinking about winning, but there's just something about the building of a team that we recognize if we're going to build the right team, we need to have the right people there. You with me so far? Now, that's true in the NFL. Uh, This time of the year now that the college football season is over, uh, coaches are starting to do that. They're trying to load the deck for next year, and so they're looking for uh, not draft picks, but uh, you know they're trying to get these recruiting process going so they get these top scholarship guys, right? So they're trying to build their team. Uh, it fits in the Olympics. Now, I don't want to have to trade in my man card or anything like that, but I'm going to tell you, last night, I used up all of my football capital during the bowl season with my wife, okay? So I know that there was an NFL playoff game on last night, but there was not a way in the world I was going to get to watch it at my house, okay? Because I watched too many bowl games. And so I found myself sitting in the living room with my wife watching figure skating. Oh, my goodness. You know how hard it is to confess certain things to you? Um, And... uh, To say I was intrigued with it all would be a lie. I I was just kind of surviving it, but I was thinking of the sermon, and so it kind of gave me that opportunity because uh, as these figure skaters were doing their thing out on the ice, uh, the commentators, by the way, what worse job in the world than to be a commentator for figure skating? So these commentators are having to come up with stuff to say, like triple sow cow and whatever that means. Uh, And they started talking about the selection of the Olympic team. Now, I'm intrigued by this because the Olympics are a sport event, sporting event of individuals for the most part. Now, you know, hockey teams and that kind of stuff, bobsled teams, that's team stuff. But figure skating is not team stuff. It's a person, or at least the kind we were watching. And so I'm intrigued with this. They're talking about making the Olympic team as if it's not some individual sport. And then I remember that in America, we place great value on getting more medals than other people, other nations. 
And so apparently, this concept still holds true. If you really want to ensure success on the team level, you need to get the right people on your team. Does that make sense? Okay, but that's not only true in sports. Uh, It's also true in business. I read a book uh, a couple years ago now by Jim Collins. Some of you have read it because they made you read it at work. Uh, It's called Good to Great. And the whole basic idea of the book is for business people, a secular uh, model, uh, that you can go from being just a good company with good product and good profit to being exceptional. So the book is trying to help people work through that process. And one of the things that Colin says in the process of that is he says, and I quote him now, you have to get the right people on the bus. Now he put with that, you got to get the wrong people off of the bus and the right people on the bus. Now, I don't want to show of hands or anything like that, but how many of you know people who clearly at work, they were not the right people for your bus? Most of us know that. Some of us are that. But that's a whole other sermon. So let me just go ahead and jump on forward here. Sometimes in the sporting world, even in business, it's important that we get the right people on the bus, that we get the right people on the team. But it's not going to be the end of the world if we don't. I mean, after all, realistically, the Texans, they did worse than the Cowboys this year. But 40 years from now, nobody's going to know and nobody's going to care. It's not that big of a deal, really. Now, there are other issues in life when getting the right people on the team is critical. I was doing a little bit of research this week on the Manhattan Project. Now, some of you are aware of that. Some of you won't be aware of that, probably. But this is the spin-up in the development of the atomic bomb that played a critical role in ending World War II. And the idea is very much uh, front and center in that particular study because do you realize, if I understand the research that I did correctly, that the United States wasn't even on the bus on the atomic thing for a while. And then it took other nations who were involved in World War II to come to the leading scientists in America and say, hey, you guys really need to get on the the stick here because if you don't, you're going to be behind and maybe even lose. And it's an amazing story to talk, to look at it and see how the United States in that terrible portion of the war began to go to our physicists and our scientists and say, we need you on board because this process, this project is critical to the world of our day. It is critical in some applications that you get the right people on the team. With that in mind, I want you to consider with me the choice that Jesus faces in Luke chapter 6. This is kind of one of those sermons, I don't mind telling you, that uh, passage of Scripture that rarely do preachers want to spend much time in. Okay? Because it's just kind of one of this, almost like this just kind of, oh yeah, by the way, here's some information for you to have that Luke gives us in his gospel. But actually, that's not the case at all. What we find in this passage, Luke chapter 6, will be in verse 12 and following here in just a couple of minutes. But what we find in this passage is a bridge in the way Luke puts his gospel together. 
We've seen Jesus and all of the stuff leading, you know, through the birth and all of that process there. And then he comes onto the scene in his public ministry. And when we've just left off with Jesus, his, his, um, well, his popularity with people is high, but now he's begun to set off the religious leaders and we find this rising level of consternation with him. They don't like him. In chapter 6, verse 11, they even say there, Luke reminds us, that that group of religious leaders starts now talking about how they can get rid of Jesus. We're going to go after this into Luke's account of Jesus and the Sermon on the Plain, which is you know, discussions about the Sermon on the Mount, the parallels and all that kind of stuff, and this teaching section of Luke's gospel that comes up next. But sandwiched between the, the rise and the opposition against him and this focused teaching, we have this little section here where Jesus picks his 12 disciples. Well, let's just read it. We're in chapter 6 of Luke's gospel, beginning in verse 12. It says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples, and he chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. And then we have a list of those. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And so in this little sandwich section, Luke identifies these 12 guys that Jesus picks as his apostles. Out of the bigger group of disciples, he narrows it down to 12. So I want us to consider two things today. First of all, I want us to consider the mission that is at work here. Now, I got to tell you, this is one of those times where our biblical knowledge kind of gets in our way for getting just how important the situation is. We know these disciples, okay? We talk about Simon Peter, you know his story, and you can go to highlights in his life and his story, and and you can tell me that kind of stuff. We know stuff about these guys. We go to the book of Acts, and we find how they have picked up the mantle, if you will, and they've moved forward, and we have these stories of these different guys as they work through, and it kind of goes from Simon Peter and James and John and kind of focuses then on Paul, and we see this progression. We know their story. We even know some of the traditions that come, much of which has no real factual basis to it. Uh, like, you know, one of some of these disciples went east all the way into India. There's the possibility that's the case. Uh, some of them went west as far as Spain, and that's probably true also. Uh, there's a lot of stuff about them that we know that kind of gets in our way when we come to this discussion. What I want you to do is not, I don't want to dismiss that stuff. I just want to back it up. And I want you, if you will, for just a moment to suspend what you know and let's consider the task that Jesus has at this point. Think for a moment about all that is at stake at this point in history. And we go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God created Adam and Eve. And he did that for fellowship with himself, with each other. And they had a key role in overseeing God's creation that we call earth. And uh, that, that all started the Garden of Eden. And then first rattle out of the box, Adam and Eve decide that they're going to break 
what God had told them to do or to not do in this case. And so they sinned and they introduced into the human condition this separation from our creator. That sin created a need in us as the created people that we can't fix. And it's such a pronounced problem that it stretched from that day all the way to ours and will continue to stretch forward until Jesus puts an end to life as we know it here and transforms everything. That sin, it was a huge thing. And it was so important that we find in Scripture that says even before it happened, God was working through the process to fix that for us. Because he created us for relationship. He wasn't willing for us to be out of relationship with himself. Sin broke that relationship. And so salvation history picks up after the Garden of Eden. And after the sin, we work our way through. We find this guy named Abraham. And God calls a people to himself, the children of Israel. Works all the way through the Old Testament. We come into the New Testament as we found in Luke's gospel here. And on that day, at that point of the small part of the world... God himself comes into flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. We just came through the Christmas season. We celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, who is the fix for our sin problem. And Luke has taken us from that entry of Christ through the early days of his public ministry. And we've seen him as he shows up at synagogues and he teaches and causes people to go, wow, did you hear that dude? Nobody teaches like he does. And then he puts with that this miraculous stuff of healing people and those kind of things so that all of the world of that little section of the world, they begin to, the buzz starts happening. Man, something's going on up there in Galilee. And Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, as we found him presented in Luke's gospel for us, now has begun to offend the religious leadership. And we come to this critical moment now. Jesus, with all that he is, understands that the mission is going to require more. It's not that he's not enough. It's just that he knows that his time here is limited and he's going to die. He's going to be killed, to be exact. Hung on a cross, pay the price of sin, go into a tomb, be resurrected from the dead, but eventually he's going to go back to heaven for a while before he comes back to get all of us. And when he goes back to heaven, he knows he's got to leave this mission of God in somebody's hands. In just over three years' time, These guys that we just read their names here, just over three years' time, the entire mission of God will fall on them. Uh, That's a big deal. If that was you, if, if you were in Jesus' shoes... And you knew that you had to pick some people to carry the banner for you, to carry the mission forward. What would the qualifications be that you would use to pick these people? I've got to tell you, uh, here's a good reason that God doesn't let me make those kind of big decisions in his kingdom's work. I wouldn't have picked these guys. 
Okay, and I'm going to come to them in just a little bit. We're trying to focus in on the mission for just a second. But I wouldn't have picked these guys. I'd have gone for guys like Bill Gates. You know, these big thinkers. Steve Jobs. You know, guys, guys who can see beyond the now and, 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 you know, two or three steps ahead of the game. I'd pick those guys who played chess really well. I, I don't do chess, okay? Hurts my brain. Brain cramps. But I want a guy who can think two or three steps ahead strategically. I'd get guys like Steven Spielberg, probably, who can just like think it and all of a sudden, you know, you get this visual out there. Those are the kind of guys I would have picked. Jesus picks fishermen. I'm going to come to that in just a second. But I want you to grasp for a second the huge nature of the mission that Jesus has and that now he's going to pass on to these guys. You know, it's not that far removed for us to take the step that says, you know, maybe we should really think about this hard. Because our church right now has two separate committees that have been formed and charged with finding a staff member to help us be more faithful to what God's called us to do as a church. Y'all are aware of that, right? Two staff members. Let's think for a second. What kind of people do you think we ought to get for those positions? Now, one of those two committees is kind of through the process of developing a profile, and we want this kind of person, okay? We don't want a person who has to shave four times a day. We just don't want that. That's just gross, okay? It just doesn't fit. We don't want a person who has webbed feet, or do we? Well, why would we want... You see, the, the process of us coming together as a church and saying, let's figure out what kind of person we need, it's critical for us. You, know, you want to know why that is? Because this individual is going to come into the life of this church and we're going to say to that person, your responsibility is to invest yourself into the people of this church and of this community for the glory of God. How many people will that individual impact over the course of their ministry in this church? Some of you, they're going to impact your kids. You better care what kind of person we get. You understand how critical the nature of this thing is? The selection process of a minister is important. How much more so for these 12 that Jesus has called to pull together to say, I'm going to hand my mission off to you and you're to run with it. The mission demands the cream of the crop. Jesus needed, I'll take Jim Collins' deal now, Jesus needed to get the right guys on the bus from the outset. So that's what's going on here. No wonder he prayed all night long. Did you see that, by the way? This is kind of one of those things that sometimes we kind of, kind of move past and we... we get on with our scripture reading and other things and we miss some of the real gems that are kind of hidden away in there. Um, why do you think Jesus... Now, wait a minute. Who was he? He's the Son of God, right? Now, actually, remember the Trinity? He is, in fact, God himself in the flesh, right? Why did he need to pray then? Well, that's your homework, okay? So you can work on that one. 
But the fact of the matter is, let's don't miss this. This was such a critical decision for him that it says that he prayed all night long. Now, we've seen Jesus already in Luke's gospel as every once in a while he would peel off and he would get away from everybody. It says that often in the morning he'd get up before the rest of the world did and he'd go off and he would pray and spend time with God. Uh, And we've talked about that, but this is one of two times in Scripture that Jesus prays all night long. You know what the other one is? It's right before he goes to the cross. You know what that tells me? This is a good time. This is almost an aside in our message, but not quite exactly. Uh, Sometimes the enormity of the situation demands intense prayer. Did you catch that? I'm not lost in my notes. I just want it to sink in real well before I move on. Sometimes the enormity of our situation demands intense prayer. I'm not talking about the kind of prayer that most of the time we like to do. That's the kind where we inform God of stuff that we're sure he must not know. You you know the kind of prayer I'm talking about? That's the kind of prayer, the one I just mentioned. That's the kind where we kind of go out to God and, and we fill up the time with us. And so we go before God. Now, God, you know that, you know, this is happening. And so, uh, I just need you. And so we just go into all of these verbal, oh man, I started to use a word I don't need to use in here. Uh, we just fill the space with noise. It's important that we recognize in this passage, Luke writes this in a way that he helps us to see the kind of prayer that Jesus engages in here. Okay? It's a kind of prayer that's not the fill the space with noise and with your voice. It's the kind of prayer that actually is initiated by God and received by the person. Jesus, in other words, in this case, according to the way Luke writes this, he's specific in the way he puts it together. This is a listening kind of prayer that Jesus goes to. It's not the kind where he would... See, for me, I'm out there going, now God, if, if you're telling me that I have to pick... 12 guys. First of all, why 12? And so my prayer goes off that way. Okay, talk about chasing rabbits. That's a, that's a rabbit in prayer. And, and okay, so all right, so I settle the 12. Now, God, I want to know, you know, you're telling me to pick this guy. What about Simon Peter? He's always good for a laugh. But you know, God, Simon Peter, he's got this big mouth problem. He's always shooting his mouth. I think he's going to get us in trouble, and I'm not too sure about that. And before you know it, you got 45 minutes worth of telling God stuff that he doesn't need to know. The way Luke writes this, Jesus is the recipient of the prayer. That's a huge thing. Because we don't like silence, especially in prayer, because it makes us uncomfortable and our thoughts go 18 million different directions. It's important enough that Jesus goes out and he spends all night in prayer listening to what God has to say. That's important for us as a church. The enormity of the decision of the situation demands intense prayer, especially in times when, like, for instance, when a church is trying to call staff people. How much have you prayed about the staff people that our church is looking for right now? now I'm not talking about, oh, God, you know, pray for the committee. 
I'm talking about deep, intense prayer because this church operates in such a way that you're going to have a chance to vote on a person if we ever find those two positions. We're going to bring them in front of the church and we're going to say, what do you think is God's plan for us with this person? Are you praying about that already? Have you thought about what kind of person we need? Because the mission is huge in this case. Sometimes the enormity of the decision demands intense prayer. Like when a church is calling a staff person or when a church needs education space that might actually cost them money to fix the problem. You know that's us, right? What should we do? And who should decide what we should do? And where's God in all of that? You see, the mission sometimes is big enough. Uh, see, I don't even like that. Let me, I'll just scrub that. Let's come back to it. Unstruck the jury. Forget everything you just heard. The mission is always that important. Always. We need to hear what God has to say to us. I had a phone conversation recently. Somebody that you don't know, okay? Not part of this community, not part of this church. But this person went on for a very long time. Now, the fact that I was talking to him was an interesting thing. The bottom line is this person needed money. Okay? So they talked to me. <laughs> Joke's on them. If you're looking for money, don't talk to me. Actually, I think the deal was that they knew that I was a preacher, and that meant I probably ran in circles or had friends uh, that might have some money. They were ready to put the work somewhere, and I think that's what they intended. They were in a bad situation. And for about 15 minutes, I listened to their bad situation, and I never once did I hear. I've been praying about what to do. Never once did I hear, and here's what I think God is teaching us through this. Never once did I hear, I'm trusting God to take care of this. Let me tell you something. If you're not in a situation that's intense enough for you to need to pray intensely, you better hang on. The deal is when you get into those intense situations, it's not a time to be a novice about prayer. You need to be practiced in hearing what God has to say in your life and in our life as a church. So it's important at this point, in this mission, they're at a point that Jesus needs to know exactly what do I do next because the intensity of what these guys will do as they go forward is such that if they drop the ball, all of God's work through history has to be rethought. You know, sometimes the Baptist approach is, why pray when you can freak out? I get that a lot. Preacher, you need to pray for me. Oh, I'm happy to pray for you. Why? Because I'm freaking out over here. All right. Well, how do you want me to pray? You want me to pray the Lord to help you freak out more until you need to trust him? All right, well, enough of that. Let me just come back to the present day. Here's the reality of this situation. The mission that he's choosing these guys for is the mission of this day also. This is not one of those things that passed off the scene when Simon Peter died. The mission is the same. It is the movement of salvation history, the good news of Jesus Christ as it goes forward. And God has chosen people to bear that mission. 
That's us. In case you're not too sure about that, let me throw a couple of terms at you here. You notice what Jesus does. In this passage, it says he prays all night, and then he goes out and from this pool of people called disciples, you know what a disciple is? A good Sunday school definition for a disciple is he's a learner. Now, we like to say he's a follower, but my dog follows me around. He's not learning anything from me, okay? He doesn't know how to turn a computer on or how to turn it off. He's not learning. He's just following because he wants food from me, okay? A disciple is a learner. And these are people who will have been following Jesus around. We've already seen that as we've gone through this. But now Jesus, in that bigger picture of people called disciples, he pulls these 12 close to himself. And it says in this passage, he calls them apostles. There's a lot of different places in the New Testament where we find the word apostles come up. Uh, and, and sometimes it has a particular nuance and other times. Here's a general definition of the term apostle. He is one who is a representative. We use the term ambassador. If you're an ambassador of the United States, then you serve in a foreign country representing your government and the people of America. And you are that country, the American country, in another place as far as that country is concerned. Okay, You are the representative of the one who sent you. Jesus refers to these guys as that. It's an interesting thing that he does here. Paul picks that up. I'm gonna, you don't have time to turn there, but I'm going to take you over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where Paul picks up on that whole idea. And the mission that we're talking about here we find in chapter 5 and especially in verse 20 where Paul says this, Therefore we, that is Christians, are ambassadors... For Christ, God making his appeal through us. In other words, the mission that the disciples had, Paul picks it up and hangs it on us, and he says, that's us. We're the ambassadors now. It's a critical thing that we get. This mission is ours. So that leads me then to the second thing I want you to consider in just a couple of minutes we'll be done here. The mission we get, and if you hadn't gotten it, let me just say it one last time here. We have the same mission they did, and that is to take the good news of Jesus Christ into the world as we know it. So now we consider the group. With something that important, it's an interesting study to look at what Jesus chose to pull that off. They're followers, they're learners, and we're going to find as we work our way through that Jesus takes these guys and he says, hey, come with me, walk with me. A peripatetic teacher was one who taught as he walked around. That's why Jesus uses a lot of those uh, parables, you know, like a guy's throwing seed out and he tells them the spiritual truth of that. They're walking through the countryside and Jesus is teaching them as we go or as they go. That's important for us. Because in order to carry the mission forward, you have to understand who Jesus is, what he taught, who he wants them to be. You've got to be a disciple of his. Our churches are full of interested people, but not necessarily disciples. 
I was reading something this week from Dr. Rick Yant, the guy who was here a few weeks ago, a number of weeks ago now for us. And he was quoting Chuck Kelly, who is the uh, president at New Orleans Baptist Seminary. And one of the things that he said is, and this is a loose quote, but uh, he says, you know, for a long time, Baptists have emphasized good preaching, but we've let good discipleship go by the wayside. Jesus starts with the disciples. That's the given. And he moves them forward into the being sent part of it. Look at these guys. I, you know, I'm sorry. I, I revealed just how unchristlike I am a lot. And this is one of those times I'd have never chosen these guys. Never. First of all, you got two sets of brothers in here. Okay, at least two. Now, I got to tell you, if it's an important job, you don't want me and my brother working together. I grew up with him, okay? I ain't working with him. There's two sets of brothers here. That might, you know, might be a workabout. But some of these guys are fishermen. The two sets of brothers for sure are fishermen because they were collaborators in a fishing industry. Let me tell you something that I learned through the years. If you want work done, don't go to the fishermen. That's a joke, fishermen, okay? Because I learned the first time I ever heard the statement was, a bad day of fishing is better than a good day at work. Now, I'm kind of sort of tongue-in-cheek about this, but everybody I know who loves to fish, you tell them you don't have to go to work today, you can go to fish, you know what they're going to do? They're going fishing because fishing's fun. Now, I'm pushing that a little bit with these guys. I'm certainly pushing because some of my best friends in this church are fishermen. But you get what I'm saying. It's just kind of one of those things. You go, well, I don't know, maybe fishermen. Uh, so let's sweeten the pot just a little bit more. These guys that Jesus picked. You know that all but one of them were from Galilee? Only one was from Judea. That's the Jerusalem part. That's the center of Jewish life. That's where the religious center was. Only one of them was from where you would expect the movers and the shakers to be from. The rest of them were from Galilee. Those are the fishermen. (laughs) Those are the guys. They're the nobodies up there in Galilee. You remember the statement about Jesus from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? That's where these guys are all from that area. They're just the backwoods country people. They're not the people from the big city and from the center of worship. They're not the ones who know how to make it happen. You know who the one person from Judea was? Judas Iscariot. And so Jesus puts together this motley crew of guys and the whole of salvation history is going to land in their lap in just a few years. And I look at that and I go, Jesus, did you, what? Let me just one last reflection on this just to let you see how motley this crew was. One of these guys was a tax collector. We saw him a couple of weeks ago, Levi, also called Matthew. He was a tax collector. You remember when we talked about tax collectors? They were guys who were sympathizers with the Roman government. Rome had conquered them. They were the occupying force there, and they forced the people to pay taxes. And so this guy, Matthew, Levi, was a tax collector. He sympathized with the Roman government. Put with that guy, this other guy named Simon the Zealot. 
You know what the word zealot means there? It was a political faction in, Jeru- or in Israel, especially in the first century, who were against the Roman occupation. So internally, in this group of 12, Jesus picks a Roman sympathizer and a guy who's ready to kill all Roman t- sympathizers. And there's a perfect mix for the first Baptist church ever. But the hardest part of church work is for me as a leader, getting God's people to get along. And Jesus picks two people from the gate, they're against one another. It causes me to step back and go, either Jesus was crazy, or it's a good thing I'm not God. By the way, that's a foregone conclusion. It's a good thing I'm not God. And he's far from crazy, he's genius in what he did. Because he pulled this group of nobody people. And within three and a half years, he says, okay, guys, go with it. Because I'm leaving. And within 30 years, they had done their job so well. As a Christian faith, had swept across the Roman Empire. Even into the halls of the palaces of Caesar. As it turns out, this is God's M.O. Taking nobodies and putting his kingdom's work on their back and saying, go after it. Consider yourself for a moment. (laughs) I had a guy come up to me after the first service today, and he said, I've never felt so good about being called a nobody. (laughs) Well, I hope that you get that, okay? Because the reality is, None of us are special. Paul said that to one of those group of Christian people that he wrote to. He said, remember, none of y'all were really the hoity-toity, you know, chief mogul factotum people in society. You were just normal people, and yet God chose you. And that same method of God just screams through the ages into Crestwood Baptist Church today. None of us are special. Some of us are a little more special than others. A&M people, I get that, okay, but none of us are all of that. We're just people. And yet somehow God has said, like he said to these guys, the mission is critical. If those guys had dropped the ball, you think we'd be here today? Now my answer to that is, yeah, because I think God was bigger than their success or failure. And he'd have found a way to make it happen. But the reality is God chose them and said, be faithful, follow me, and then get out there and tell people. And he says the same thing to you and to me. A number of years ago, one of my favorite preachers said this, nobody stood and applauded them. So they knew from the start that this road would not lead to fame. All they really knew for sure was that Jesus had called them and he said, come follow me. And they came, great phrase here, with reckless abandon, they came. My new favorite preachers, one of them, is a contemporary Christian music group called Casting Crowns. They have a song that I think captures what I want to be true of my life. My last Sunday, or going into my last Sunday in Edinburgh two and a half years ago, 
the band came to me and said, what's your favorite song that we want to sing in church? And I said, it's this one. It's called Life Song by Casting Crowns. And among other things, that song says this, I want to sign my name at the end of the day knowing that my heart was true. Let my life song sing for you. The mission of these 12 men has been handed down through the years and it lands squarely in the lap of Crestwood Baptist Church in this area. What is your life song every day? Does with reckless abandon they came characterize you? Let me put it this way. The one thing I want you to take away from this message today. God has strategically placed you in a circle of people who desperately need to know him. That's the mission for us. So this week, would you pray about the opportunity to share Christ with that person? I'm not talking about just praying that God somebody, God sends somebody to save them. God says, I'm sending you to save them. You don't need a preacher. They'd never listen to a preacher, but they'll listen to you. What are you going to do with that? Week in, week out, with reckless abandon, the mission is yours. Let's pray. And so, Father, as we come to grips with these truths, we have to come to grips with an evaluation of ourselves. Please help us to see that this is not just some kind of consumer thing that we get in Christianity where we feel good about what you've done for us and we know that our eternity is wrapped up in heaven and so we get to go there and be nice and happy. Father, help us to see that you call us to take as many people with us as we can when we go. For the glory of God, not for ourselves. Not so that we can feel good about us, but so that they can know that they've been saved by a God who loves them enough to send a Savior. Help us, the nobodies of the 21st century, to stand tall and vocal for the cause of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray.